Well, good evening, everyone. And thank you very much, Sally, for leading us. Thank you, musicians. Uh, tonight, in our ongoing journey through the Bible, we've come to the end of the book of Acts in our actual, or the actual text in our essential 100 reading is Acts chapters 25 to 28. Now that's four chapters. It's actually the final four chapters of the book. And if I was going to try to deal with those in any real decent detail, then we, we would be here all night. And so what I want to do, and this is something I know I often do uh, and have been doing in this series, is I sort of want to paint some broad brush strokes. I kind of want to tell the story of those four chapters and home in on some specific details. But before we get into this, let me ask you a question. Where is Acts chapter 29? Okay, where is Acts chapter 29? Now, as you frantically look for it, you'll discover that it's not in your Bibles. So what is it? Or what might it be? Or could it be? Or should it be? And so what I want you to do is just hold that thought. Just hold that idea as we work our way through the story. It starts, by the way, on page 1,122. Uh, there are Bibles in the pews. If you don't have your own Bible with you and you would like to follow the story, then can I encourage you to, to turn to page 1122. Paul, at this stage in the story, is a marked man. You need to know that. He's been converted. He's been a Christian. He's been a follower of the way, whatever way you want to put it. He's been like that for 25 years. But his passionate commitment to share the story of Jesus has landed him in prison. And he has been there for about two years by the time you get to chapter 25. And he's already endured one trial by the governor, the Roman governor of Judea at that time, a man called Felix. But no charges are brought. And the reason that no charges are brought against him is because, bottom line, Paul's done nothing. Done nothing to deserve death or further imprisonment. And so after Felix, there's a new Roman governor, a man called, unfortunately, Festus. And he takes over and he decides to organize a second trial. And those accusing Paul which are mainly chief priests and Jewish leaders, they're given a chance to state their case, to bring their charges against Paul. Problem is, they can't prove any of them. There's no evidence. There's nothing to substantiate their charges. And so though that should have been it, that should have been case closed, interrogation over Festus, it says in the text, for some reason, we're not, no real idea why, he wants to do the Jews a favor. And so he suggests that Paul goes to Jerusalem for yet another trial. And at this point in the story, you read that Paul then decides to appeal to Caesar, which he's every right to do. Festus kind of likes that idea, mainly because it means it's going to get Paul off his turf, out of his hair. But for Paul... There were probably a couple of more shrewd reasons for appealing to Caesar. The first is that he would have had a better chance of a fair and just trial in Rome as compared to Jerusalem. But secondly, and maybe more interestingly, 
It's because Paul has always had this burning desire to go to Rome. To share the story of Jesus in that amazing city. Granted, going there as a prisoner was not ideal. But for Paul, it definitely beat not going there at all. Now before Paul heads for Rome, King Agrippa, I'm just just telling the story. King Agrippa shows up in Caesarea. And so Festus takes the chance to discuss Paul's case with him. And King Agrippa appears to be intrigued by this man called Paul. And he says, I'd like to hear him for myself. And so Festus arranges yet another trial for the next day. That's three trials. And even after this third one, which we'll look at in a moment, they still can't find a decent reason to kill Paul or to keep him locked up. There's a real sense of injustice in this story. And yet, Paul never seems to buckle. Never seems to give in under the unfair treatment that he receives. And at this third trial... Festus admits he's got a problem. And the problem is he needs to write something and put it in a letter and send it to Rome with Paul. Because to send Paul to Rome without a letter explaining what he has done would have been madness. And so in Festus's mind, he hopes that King Agrippa, by interrogating Paul, will help him to put something down on paper. Okay, you still with me now? So Agrippa, this is the next day, he gives Paul permission to bring his defense. And what Paul does is he grabs the opportunity with both hands. And what he does is he shares his story. So if you look at the beginning of verse or chapter 26, this is all in here. He talks about his life before Jesus. He tells Agrippa all about it. How he was brought up a Pharisee. How he used to persecute the Christians. Then he recalls his dramatic life-changing encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. Then he tells Agrippa how Jesus commissioned him to go and help people turn from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to God. He tells them they need to do this in order that they might receive forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus. And Paul goes on to share how he did that by calling people to repent. In other words, inviting people to turn around, change their ways, give their lives over to God. And by ensuring or insisting that people proved they had done that by their actions. Don't just claim it. Live it. And he summed up his defense in this way. He says this, just quoting Paul. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Well, as Paul shares this story with Agrippa, Festus has had enough. He interrupts and he declares Paul to be a nutcase. Insane. He says, you're mad. You are completely mad. King Agrippa, on the other hand, he responds sarcastically. Do you think, Paul, 
that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul's response to that is really honest. And he makes his intention very clear as to why he shared his story. I pray that not only you, King Agrippa or Festus, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. In other words, Paul was really clear. The reason I'm telling you this story, I want you to be a Christian. That's my agenda. That's my intention. And although, again, we've said this, Paul's situation is unique. I know that. Very few of us are going to have to suffer three trials. But I'll guarantee you that most of us who are on the way will have opportunities to share our story with some people. And so if you like, here's a framework. If you ever are looking for how how do I go about sharing my story, here's a great framework. Talk about your pre-Jesus life. What that looked like. What you were like. Share your story of your personal encounter with Jesus because all those who have been converted have a personal story to tell of their encounter with Jesus. Share it. It's not maybe as dramatic as Paul's in the Damascus Road, but you have your own story to tell. Tell it. Confirm your commission to be a witness because every single Christian that sits here tonight has been commissioned to go and be witnesses, to go and share the good news. Share the gospel. We heard about this this morning. Tell people the good news about Jesus. Include his death and talk about his resurrection as Paul did. Speak about forgiveness. Speak about the need for people to be forgiven. Why is forgiveness so important? Invite people to turn to God. To turn their lives around. And then finally, be clear on why you're telling them your story. And this may seem strange, but actually be honest about your agenda. I want to share this with you because I long for you to know Jesus as I know Jesus. And for most of us, I'll guess that the prospect of that is probably quite scary. And if we ever got the opportunity, we'd say, I'm never going to remember that, or I wouldn't be able to articulate that, or I'd be really uncomfortable sharing that, even embarrassed, isolated, who knows. But look at verse 22, because this reality and truth stands. This is what Paul said. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and I testify to small and great alike. And I just love that. Because you see, our situation, our context, our environment has changed. But our need to testify and our promise of God's help has not changed. Because what has Jesus said? Go and do this. And surely I am with you when? Always. Right to the very end of the age. You're never alone. And so Paul will give you the or God will give you the help as he gave Paul to share your story. And even though some people will think you're a nutcase, and others will not be persuaded by what you say, one of the lessons out of this is just don't give up. Just keep sharing your story. Because some will embrace it. Some will believe. 
Some will put their faith in God because of Jesus and as a result of what you have said. And if you were here this morning, what this is really all about is it's about being a mission-minded Christian. Someone who's not ashamed of the gospel. Someone who's prepared to keep hearing it and keep passing it on. Why? Because we want to go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's why we're here now. Back to the story. Despite uh, Festus and Agrippa's rather negative response to what Paul has shared, they still don't think he deserves to die. Even though, as I say, they've reacted very negatively to him, they still don't think he should be kept as a prisoner. But Paul has appealed to Rome. He has appealed to Caesar, and therefore he's got to go there. And it's interesting to note that, by the way, Festus, as you read in the very last chapter, never did get round to writing anything. And so whenever Paul does get to Rome, the leaders discover we have heard nothing in writing from Caesarea. So he never did find anything to actually accuse Paul of. So Paul, at this stage in the story, along with a number of other prisoners, plus minders, centurion, bunch of soldiers, all head for Rome via boat. And en route, a wind of hurricane proportions known as, and I love this little detail, the actual name of the hurricane, storm, is in here. It's called the Northeaster. It hits them. And it rages, it says, for days and for days. And what they end up doing is they end up throwing some of the cargo overboard and even some of the ship's gear. And actually, everyone eventually loses all hope of being saved. Every single one of the, on board that ship stares death in the face. They're convinced they're going to die. And Paul then stands up. I'm not exactly sure how he does that. That's neither here nor there. And then he speaks. Turns out that Paul had told him, this is crazy, set and sail for Rome at the moment. But nobody's listened to my advice, and now you're in this mess. And so what Paul then does is he says, listen, see last night, I received a visit. I received a visit from an angel who stood beside me. And he told me two things. First, I'm going to stand trial before Caesar. Secondly, everybody's going to live. And so Paul's recommendation is this. Keep up your courage. Now remember the context. Keep up your courage. For I have faith in God that this will happen just as he told me. And in Acts chapter 27 where Paul says this, there's no record of how everybody on board responded. We can only imagine But the truth was about to be out in two weeks. Because after two weeks of being pummeled by this northeaster, the ship eventually hits a sandbar. It runs aground and it's smashed to smithereens by the pounding surf. And the soldiers on board momentarily think about killing all the prisoners. Why? Because they don't want them to escape, to swim to safety. But the centurion who's with them, who actually wants to save and spare Paul, he stops them from carrying out their plan. And as it turns out, and I love all this detail. This is why I believe it's worth telling the story. All 276 on board either do one of two things. Swim to land if they can swim. And if they can't swim, grab hold of a piece 
of the smashed up boat and float away. You see, Paul was right. Everybody did live. And more importantly, what God had said would happen did happen. God's promise that everyone would live came true. There were moments whenever it looked like God's word and God's promise were going to be proved wrong. E.g., as that ship was ripped apart, it looked like, see what you had said, Paul, that God had said, no way is it going to happen. Or, as the soldiers planned to kill all the prisoners again, Paul, you said, God said that everybody would live. It's not going to happen. And yet, as we have discovered time and time again on this journey, when God speaks, when God promises anything, then he will see it through. God's word, God's promises are dependable even when your circumstances imply other ways. And so the question is, or the challenge is, and I find this really challenging if I'm honest, do I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me? So take, for example, the promise of God I mentioned a few moments ago. Surely I'm with you always, David, right to the end of the age. God said that. God's promised that. Do I have faith to believe that? Or, God has promised that what he started in me, he will see it through to completion. Do I have faith to believe that? In spite of my current circumstances. Or, God has said that it is destined unto every single one of us to die once and then to face judgment. God has promised that. But do I actually honestly, honestly believe that? And if I do believe that, how is that altering the way I live my life? That every single person I know is going to face the judgment of God. Do I honestly have faith to believe that what God has said will happen, will actually happen? Could go on, but I think you get the point. Another angle that you can take in this is this. Is the need or the privilege to speak words of hope into apparently bleak and difficult situations. To be agents of hope in what often seems like a dark and hopeless world. You see, the 276 passengers and the crew of that ship had given up all hope of being saved. It says that. They just said, we're all going to die. And as they looked around them and as they reflected on their situation, they saw no future. But whenever God is present, whenever God is still at work, well, there is hope. There is a better and a brighter tomorrow. And in tough situations, and this is the hard bit again for us as Christians, in tough situations, Situations we can become agents of hope. How? As we sensitively and appropriately share God's words of life and offer fresh perspectives into this dark, hopeless world. Are you an agent of hope? Well, it turns out that the 276 survivors are all washed up on an island, the island of Malta. And as you read about what happens there, and you read about what happens there in the first 14 verses of the very last chapter, you discover an aspect of Paul's character that I think we sometimes miss. Because you see, Paul is clearly a strong man. 
He is a strong leader. He's a confident speaker. He's a bold witness. He's not afraid to speak up and speak out in each and every context he found himself in, finds himself in. But although that's true, and that is who Paul is, don't miss this. He's also a servant. He may be great, but he's also humble and he's willing to serve and care for others. And we see this during this really short spell in Malta. Two things happen. The first is, and I love this little detail, and at one level I kind of wonder why the author put this in. The first is that as the Maltese people set a fire to provide heat and a warm welcome because it started to rain, where's Paul? Well, if you actually look, Paul is off gathering wood. He must have been exhausted, he must have been freezing. And yet he's prepared to roll up his sleeves and get involved in the simple, ordinary things of life in order to help others. And the second insight into Paul's servant heart is he actually visits one of the sick uh, relatives of a key islander. He doesn't just visit him, he prays with him. And he prays for him. And it turns out that Publius's father is cured And as he's cured, it then says that everyone who was suffering from a disease on the island comes to see Paul. And what does Paul do? He spends time with each of them. And he prays for them. And they are healed. And I don't want to make too much of this. Because they may seem like a couple of rather incidental moments in the story. And I don't want to place an emphasis where one shouldn't be placed. But I do think that these insights in the Paul's servant heart are worth mentioning because they prove this, that despite all that Paul has been through, despite what Paul is currently going through, despite what lies ahead for Paul, his immediate future, he's not caught up in himself. He's not consumed by his world. He actually takes time, makes time to live beyond himself. And you know, that is a way of life and an attitude that we who follow the ultimate servant are called to embrace. And so, in these final chapters, we see Paul as a willing witness, an agent of hope, and a humble servant. And in many ways, that should describe every single one of us here who claim to be Christians. We're willing witnesses. We're people who bring hope into bleak, dark, hopeless situations. And we're willing to serve others and not be totally consumed by what's going on in our worlds. And again, this is where I find God's word so challenging. But it's, and I'm nearly done, it's time for Paul to leave Malta. But remember, he's a prisoner. And so it's not really up to Paul, in a sense, to leave Malta. It's up to those who are taking him to Rome to decide when he's going to leave for Malta. And so all 276 leave the island and head for their planned destination. Although for Paul, there's a real sense that he's heading for his destiny. This is what it was all leading to. This was just the beginning for Paul. Everything he had done in his life and he had been through was in preparation for this moment. Because according to Acts 23, as Paul tells his story of his dramatic encounter of Jesus, 
This is what Paul says that Jesus said to him. Take courage, Paul. For, you, for as you have testified things about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. It was Paul's destiny. Jesus had said this. And so they set sail. All 276 of them, they leave Malta, they set sail for Rome. And when they get there, and I'm condensing this big time, and when they get there, Paul is able to rent accommodation for two years. But according to verses 16 and 20, he's under house arrest the whole time. And so not only does he have a Roman soldier with him permanently, but he also is constantly in chains. And from that little rented accommodation, and under those conditions, Paul does a couple of key things. Well, that is apart from right four so-called prison letters, because it was during this time that Paul wrote Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians. But apart from that, he does two key things. And it's almost here that I want to finish. And the two things are spelt out in verses 30 and 31, the very final verses of the book. It says this, Paul announced or proclaimed the kingdom of God and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. But here's what's fascinating. The story ends there. Which when you think about it, is really, really odd. Remember, the whole point of Paul coming to Rome was what? It's to testify before Caesar. He had appealed to Caesar. And so surely we're all left wondering, well, how did that go? What what happened? How did Paul get on? And bizarrely, Dr. Luke, the author, doesn't tell us. There's no acts chapter 29 or is there you see there's almost a sense that this is actually an unfinished story and maybe that is exactly the point because do you know what happens with an unfinished story it leaves the reader facing a question what are you going to do with this what are you going to do about this and therefore part of why I believe Luke left it there is to remind us to encourage us that the story continues. That you see, God is still writing this story through his followers. This is, if you like, a living story. We are invited to write Acts 29. How do we do that? By announcing the kingdom of God and teaching others about Jesus. That we, along with those who have gone before us in the past 2,000 years, we pick up from where Paul left off. We keep this story alive. That is our challenge, to keep this story alive. As with boldness, we affirm this in Jesus, in Jesus, the King has come. God's rule, God's reign has broken into our world. That's been confirmed by the life, teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God is here. It's here now, although it's not fully or completely here. That will ultimately happen with the return of Jesus and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. But the kingdom of God is present. It is manifest around us. The invisible becomes visible when, for example, we, like Paul, share the gospel. 
When we become willing witnesses, the invisible becomes visible. Whenever we, like Paul, become agents of hope and speak hope into dark, hopeless situations, the invisible becomes visible. The kingdom of God is seen. Whenever we, like Paul, are prepared to be humble servants and serve others, the invisible becomes visible and the kingdom of God is seen. And so where is Acts 29? Well, I want to suggest take a look around you. Have a look at each other because it's here and it's now. And so as we walk out those doors in a moment... Let's keep this story alive as we go out and announce the kingdom of God and teach as many people as we can about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in the silence... Again, I would just ask that anything that has been of you, that has been helpful, that has been beneficial, that has been profitable, will uh, find a resting place, will lodge in our hearts and minds, and anything that has been unhelpful and off me and unprofitable would be very quickly forgotten. But God, I would ask that as we leave this church building tonight, that those of us who have been changed, who have been converted, who do walk the way, that you'd help us to leave here as willing witnesses, as agents of hope, as humble servants, as we go to announce the kingdom of God and share Jesus. And thank you that you've given us your spirit to help in that adventure. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.